a copy of God's Word, would you open with me to John's Gospel, the Gospel according to John, fourth Gospel in your New Testament. And on this first Sunday of 2013, we will begin walking through John's account of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray we will glean much from the riches of these inspired words for our faith and practice. It was uh, such a work of God's grace to see the Lord carry us all the way through 1 Corinthians as a church together. There were some weeks where some of you went out completely different than when you came in. And it was a joy to watch the fruit of the Lord's uh, Spirit applying the Word to your lives from week to week. And I pray that we'll see the same thing as we traverse John's Gospel. Today we'll be looking at the first five verses. And extra Bibles are available there in the pew in front of you if you don't have one. And you can find our sermon text on page 886. Once you're there, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, these words of yours are true and holy and very good for us to consider as another year begins. Before there were any years... Before there was time, you existed in perfect harmony with your Son, dwelling in the eternal joys rooted in your relationship with Him. And you created this year, and you will sustain its days for your gracious purposes in your Son. Nothing will happen this year apart from your sovereign control and holy wisdom to continue your purpose in uniting together all things in your Son, and doing so for our never-ending joy. Help us take great courage in these words here and help us to see Jesus, our God, our Creator, our life-giving light. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to thank my brothers Wes and... Kevin, for devoting themselves to the Word and for preaching through the Advent season and feeding our souls with the Word of God. One of my favorite places to be on Sunday morning is actually not up here, but down there in the pews with you all, having the Word of God wash over me as well and exposing my sin and increasing my joy in the Lord Jesus. And I'm thankful that our brothers... Uh, that other brothers, as well as Wes and Kevin, are so anxious and so willing to jump in at any moment 
and do just that, to wash you all with the word. You know, the life of the church is not dependent on any one preacher or personality, but on the one gospel given to us all to enjoy the good news of Jesus Christ. It's been this way since the church of Jesus Christ was born. The church was not built on the personalities of a Matthew or of a Mark or of a Luke or of a John. Rather, the church was created by and built upon and sustained through not any one of those preachers, but through the the, the gracious and precious gospel that each of them preached. So even though we often call the first four books of our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, historically speaking, and more accurately speaking, they were always called the gospel according to Matthew. The gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Luke. The gospel according to John. Four unique men writing from different perspectives. The Lord using all their personalities and human faculties and backgrounds and upbringing. But every one of them preaching one gospel. Preaching one and the same Jesus. They knew that only this Jesus, that in this Jesus, were sinful and fallen and broken human beings to find eternal life for their souls. The church was never built upon the preachers and the personalities of the first century Christian church, but upon the message of truth, the one gospel of our salvation. John even tells us toward the end of his message in chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, why he has written all that he has written. It goes like this. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Everything that we'll cover over the next year, two, maybe three, everything will be toward that end. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so as we encounter this one called the Word in verses 1 to 5, we need to ask ourselves the question that John wants us to be asking. Namely, what must we understand about Jesus if we are to have life? And he means eternal life in his name. And there are three things about Jesus in these verses that John wants us to understand. So savor these words now because... Your gaining life in Jesus' name hangs on what John's about to tell us in verses 1 to 5. Number one, John tells us that Jesus is the eternal God. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. Now, to be more specific, John actually says in verse 1 that this one called the Word is the eternal God. But that's not because John begins his gospel. But that's, that's precisely because John begins his gospel account before the Son's divine nature was united to his human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Before Joseph called his name Jesus in the Christmas story, John tells us that, tells us that this unique Son, this Word, had an existence unlike any other Son 
end the universe. Read with me verse 1 again. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. With these words, John pushes his, his proclamation of Jesus back before the beginning of Jesus' ministry, like we see in Mark 1, verse 1. He pushes his proclamation of Jesus back before the birth of Jesus, like we see in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1 and 2. He pushes his proclamation back before even the promise of Abraham's seed, like we see in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. He pushes his story all the way back into eternity past, before the world existed, before the morning stars could sing together and all the sons of God could shout for joy at the creation of the cosmos because there were none in existence to do so. John says, in the beginning was the Word. The same words that open the Bible storyline in Genesis 1-1. But whereas Moses wrote, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, John writes, in the beginning was this Word. And the Word Jesus pre-existed the created order. His divine nature as Son is eternal. The Word never had a beginning. In the beginning, He simply was. He simply existed on His own without help from any other creature or matter or outside intelligence or energy. As the Word, Jesus never had a beginning. Jesus' human nature had a beginning. But his divine nature as the word, as son of God, never had a beginning. That makes him really, 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 really different from all of you in this room. And everybody else in this universe. And every angel or demon or power or authority or any other created being or things. Jesus is in a category of eternal existence that makes him way different from everything else that has no eternal existence. When it comes to eternal existence, only two categories exist in the universe according to the Bible. That which is eternal, namely God himself, and then everything else that's not God. Jesus falls into the first category. He has an eternal existence. He is and has always existed as the eternal God. This is why Paul in Colossians 1.17 adds to his litany of truth that shows Jesus' supremacy over all things in the world these words. Before, in, before all, he was before all things and in him all things hold together. He was before all things. It's why Jesus calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who is and who was and who is to come in Revelation 1.4 and 22.13. Now, not everyone who makes use of the Bible for their religion affirms this. Arius, in the third century, denied that Jesus was eternal and therefore not equal to God. Arius said that there was once when he was not. And today, the Jehovah Witnesses deny the same reality about the Son's eternal existence. 
But John makes it clear what he's inferring from this first part of verse 1. John's inferring that Jesus' eternal existence means that he is in fact God. Look at the rest of verse 1. We've seen, in the beginning was the Word, and listen to these two statements, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, if the Word was in, was in the beginning, with, was in the beginning, then the, the question still remains. Are you saying that he was with God in the beginning, or that he was actually God? And John says, yes. Both. He affirms both. The word was with God. That means he had a personal relationship with God for all eternity. It's why John can say down in verse 18, which we'll get to in two weeks, no one has ever seen God, the only God. He's talking about the word, the son, the only God who is at the father's side. See the relationship here. We're starting to see how there can be a relationship within the one Godhead with a father and a son. So the only God who is at the father's side, he has made God known. That's why Jesus prays in John 17, 5, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world even existed. The word was with God. And John says the word was God. It means he shared the same divine essence with God. He wasn't just a God like the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses argue. The text itself and the context and the entire Bible, which we'll see in a minute, is clear that the Word was actually God. In this sense, the true church of Jesus Christ has always been right to affirm these truths in her doctrine of what we call the Trinity. With Scripture, the church confesses that while being a distinct person from the Father within the Godhead, Jesus still shares the divine essence with the Father. He himself is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. The Apostle Paul, the writer of Hebrews, and the Apostle Peter, and King David are just as explicit when speaking about Jesus. Listen to some of these verses uh, that uh, that I've pulled out here. In fact, it might even be useful for you in your evangelism and your discipleship of young believers to have some of these verses in mind. You might jot them down and memorize them later. For example, Romans 9.5. Romans 9.5. To the Jews... Belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Isn't that amazing? Just explicit is the Christ, talking about Jesus, who is God over all, blessed forever. Titus 2.13 we Christians waiting, are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our God and He is our Savior. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. But of the Son, 
God says this, and then he quotes Psalm 45. So this ought to teach us how to read the Psalms. But of the Son, God says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's what David, that's what the writer of Hebrews, that's what the Holy Spirit says about the Son of God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness, again, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or 1 John 5, 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. That's who Jesus is, John says. So put those in your disciple-making bag as you're compassionately helping people, Christian and non-Christians alike, Love the Savior and have life in his name. Moreover, learn how to read your entire Bible in light of the Trinity, in light of Jesus, the eternal God. Number two, the second thing John tells us here. So the first thing, Jesus is the eternal God. John tells us next that Jesus is the creator of all things. Jesus is the creator of all things. At this point, further buttresses what he just said about Jesus being God. Listen to verses 2 to 3. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Again, the Bible here gives us only two categories to work with, right? Two categories in which you should think about everything in the universe. There is the Creator, namely God, and then there's everything else. There is the category of anything made that was made, and then there's Jesus, who made it. Paul says the same thing in Colossians 1.16, For by Jesus, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. There is, again, whatever is made, and then there's Jesus. I wonder if that hits you like it should. There is anything made from the greatest heavenly cherubim who surround the throne of God to the darkest demon roaming the earth to the most powerful kings in human history to the lowliest bug crawling in the dirt to the microscopic germ that made you sick last week to every subatomic particle in the universe anything made and then there's Jesus who made it according to my bible that means Jesus is worthy of all worship Christianity alone, true Christianity alone, declares that Jesus is worthy of all worship. Is that not what the Psalms cry out about the Creator, about Yahweh, Lord of hosts, who 
By the breath of his mouth, the heavens were made, and by the word of his mouth, everything else. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the earth. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? For he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth, all peoples, princes and rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and all the heavens. If Jesus is the creator of all things, Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is Yahweh. He deserves all adoration and praise. He's not a mere man for us to sit back and toy with what we do and don't like about him. We should respond as Peter did after Jesus filled their boats with fish and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. O Lord, and then stand absolutely amazed that his grace gives us access to him when he says, don't be afraid. It's no wonder the heavens can't keep quiet about Jesus, but they must sing to him who sits on the throne, God, and to the Lamb, that's the word, that's Jesus, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Jesus is worthy of our worship. You know, knowing that Jesus is one, the eternal God, and two, the creator of all things, makes an, also makes an infinite difference when we look at the cross. Does it not? This was no ordinary man who gave his life for our stupid rebellion. This is the eternal God, the creator of all things, who spills his blood for me. That it took the crucifixion of the eternal Son of God and creator of all things means that my sin is more than just a slip-up. My sin is more than just an oopsie-daisy. My sin problem is of such magnitude before God that it took no one less than God to suffer and die for it. The cross is a mega solution to our mega problem. And we see that all the more clearly when we believe John's words that this one known as the Word is the eternal God and creator of all things. Moreover, this means that our Christian discipleship, our following Jesus, is a God issue. It is a God issue. Not obeying Jesus' commands, not living as Jesus demands that we live, not taking up our cross daily, not loving the brothers as we ought to love them, is really making a public statement about the one to whom we owe all of our existence. You blow Jesus' words off, you're blowing God off. 
A true biblical understanding of Jesus will not allow us to use Jesus to get, ri- to get right with God and then live like he's not God. A true biblical understanding of Jesus will lead us into humble obedience before the God of the universe. A God who not only fashioned you in your mother's womb to enjoy his glory, but himself entered a mother's womb in order to die for you, spurning that glory. Jesus is God, creator of all things and our Savior. Number three. John tells us that Jesus is the life-giving light. John tells us that Jesus is the life-giving light. Look how he brings together these themes of life and light in verses 4 and 5. John says, In him was life. So Jesus has life in himself. He's the source of all life. And that makes sense if he's God and creator that he would have life in himself. If you think back to the creation story and God speaking a word and giving life to the universe and its creatures, now think of God doing that through Jesus who made the world. In him was life. But what we see next is that John means more than just physical life. That physical life was in Jesus. But also spiritual life because he goes on to say, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. How is it that life life can serve as a light? How is it that life serves as a light for men, that is, people, men and women, who apparently are in darkness? What what does John mean that the life that's in Jesus serves as a light for people in darkness? I want you to think Old Testament with me for a minute because that's where John's getting his categories to teach us about Jesus. And one place I found helpful was Psalm 36. Psalm 36. You can go there with me. It's on page 465 of the Pew Bible if you're using one. Psalm 36. I'm going to turn there. David, in, in the first... Four verses of Psalm 36. You can see just these sorts of words. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while he's on his bed. He himself set he himself in a way uh, sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. These first four verses. That David speaks about our transgression and wickedness and deceit and trouble and evil. So basically all things related to rebellion against God. Okay? And then, if you just skip over to verses 11 to 12, we see that he actually tells us that whenever you walk like that, whenever you walk in that evil way, in that muck, you die. You perish. Verse 12 There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. So you die, you perish, the Lord destroys you. 
But then, in verses 5 to 9, he contrasts all that evil and sin with God who is rich in steadfast love and who is characterized by righteousness. And this is how he ends the section in verse 9 of Psalm 36. For with you, Lord, is the fountain of life. Does that sound familiar? In him was life. For with you, Lord, is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. You got life and light contrasted with all this evil stuff around it. So walking in light, seeing light is equivalent to partaking from the fountain of life. And when you drink from the fountain of life, namely God, you won't be like the wicked who glut themselves on transgression and evil and sin and wind up dead. Okay? Instead, you'll be walking in the light, and when you walk in the light, you experience life. So there's a contrast between walking over there in the darkness of sin and death and over here in God's light and life. Well, what about, turn with me over one book to uh, Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, verses 23 to 24, page 531 in the Pew Bible. Proverbs 6, 23 to 24. God says there, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. So you got light and life. This is their purpose. To preserve you from the evil woman, the smooth tongue of the adulteress. So again, we see a contrast between light and life on the one hand, and then evil on the other hand. The light of godly instruction, the light of godly discipline is to guard us from evil, okay? which means evil falls into the category of darkness and death if it's not light and life. Okay? Then look with me in one more place in the Old Testament at Isaiah 9.2. Isaiah 9.2. This is a familiar passage to us at Christmas time. Isaiah 9.2, <clears throat> here we see that, uh, and, and, and up to this point, we have seen that darkness is associ- in, in, the, in Isaiah is associated with sin and death because of the sinfulness of the nations who war against each other in ignorance. And then the promise comes in Isaiah 9.2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a, has light shined. Now, when Luke picks this up in Luke chapter 1, verse 79, he tells us that to sit in darkness, this Old Testament theme of sitting in darkness, is the same thing as sitting in the shadow of death. He equates the two. They are parallels. So to sit in darkness means you're sitting under the shadow of death due to sin. All right? You have no hope of life when you sit here. Because the darkness of death overshadows you. Unless a light shines that dispels the darkness of death and then brings new life. 
And throughout John's gospel, this is exactly what we find as God sends his son to earth, as the eternal word is made flesh. John says in chapter 1, verse 9, which we'll look at next week, that he, the word, Jesus, is the true light who came into the world. Then John chapter 3, verse 19 says that the light has come into the world. It's talking about Jesus. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Darkness, think of it with me as we look at, back now at, at John 1, verse 5. Darkness is the muck of humanity, the power of sin, the gloom of death, the evil of the world. And the eternal God in Jesus Christ entered this darkness to deliver us through his life-giving light. How is it then that the life that's in Jesus serves as a light for us? It does so by being a kind of life that delivers from the bondage of sin and unbelief and death and evil. When the life of Jesus comes into you by the Holy Spirit and faith in Christ, death and darkness are not only exposed, but also conquered, overwhelmed, and swallowed up by light. Whatever darkness that exists within or that overwhelms us from without is unable to withstand the light of Jesus. When the light of God's presence shines on you in Christ, new life is born. New life that lifts you from your bondage to sin and death because you now see how to get to the fountain of life and drink true, satisfying, saving, spiritual drink. Isn't that what Jesus means in John 8, 12? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. He will have the light of life. The light which is life. Or John 12, verse 46. I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is the life-giving light. The one who follows him, who treasures his every word, who looks to him for everything. That person will have the light that imparts life to the soul. And does so without fail. Right? Without fail. Don't lose sight of all that John strings together in these verses with eternal God, creator of all things and life-giving light. There's a reason the darkness has not overcome and cannot overcome the life-giving light. Namely, the life-giving light is also God, the creator of all things. He has no competitors in this dark world to his divine light. You name any darkness... Name any sin, any evil, any demonic power or temptation. It has nothing on Jesus Christ, the eternal God and creator of all things. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Why? Because the darkness is not God. The darkness is not God. Darkness has nothing on the Lord Jesus ever. It looked as if it did when death took Jesus into the grave. But when you have life in yourself, when you are the fountain of life, it's impossible for death to keep you in the grave. Jesus took on himself the darkness of our sin and subjected himself to the darkness of 
our death because not be, not because he was weak, but because he was strong on our behalf. And then he blew them both to smithereens when he rose victorious from the grave over our darkness. And my Bible tells me in Revelation 19 through 22 that this same word of God, who is named in chapter 19 of Revelation, this same word of God is coming again to conquer darkness once and for all and to gather us into a kingdom of light where the glory of God gives gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. Now that's really encouraging if you believe in Jesus and have life in his name. And I want you to seriously consider it To consider this, Jesus as God, creator of all things and life-giving light, as we come to the Lord's table this morning. When the life-giving light of the eternal word shines into the darkness of your sinful life in this sinful world, the darkness has not and does not overcome it. It may attempt to hide from him, but it cannot overcome him. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to name in your head... I want you to name any darkness right now. I just want you to name any darkness that you are facing. And then look and pray for the eternal Son of God to shine his light, to overcome it. So what do you see? The darkness of besetting sins, like greed and lying and lust and anger. Pornography, the fear of man. What do you see? And I want you to look to Jesus, God, creator of all things, and life-giving light to overcome it, to conquer it. Seek his face daily. They, all of those things, are no match for the life-giving light when you follow him and learn him and know him and savor him in everything. Do you see the darkness of sin in your parenting, harshness toward your children, laziness in discipline? Or how about darkness that looms over your marriage or in your relationship with others? Jesus entered this world to shine the light of Yahweh's presence upon it and give you new life in his name. There is great hope that he will overcome it all with his light when you cling to him. It's not in running from the light that we find life, but in running to the light that we find life. If we walk in the light, John tells us in his first letter, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Right? We have the life of fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Well, what about the darkness of death that looms over you with the loss of another loved one? I heard of a family at Bethel Fellowship. You can pray for them. I cannot remember their their names now. Jacob Pittman passed their name along to me. But they lost their 20-year-old daughter this week to pneumonia. You talk about a darkness that sits on parents. But it's not too much for God. It never will be. The darkness never will be a match For God, the word says that through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, God abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What about the darkness of depression? 
Again, the darkness has not overcome his light. You may not be able to see that light shining yourself. You may not be able to see it when you sit in darkness. But I'm here to tell you that God sees what's shining. God sees perfect. He has perfect vision of what's shining in this universe and what's mighty to shine and what's powerful to shine to deliver you. And his word says to you this morning, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He sees better than you do in your depression. So cling and turn to his word. Moreover, if you believe in Christ, he has qualified you, dear brother or sister, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You are part of a family of light. (laughs) Brothers and sisters who can remind you of Jesus' undefeatable light when you just can't see it. Whatever darkness that stares you in the face, consider Jesus Christ this morning as you come to this table. Eternal God, creator of all, life-giving light, has given you this table to remind you of these things. He died for them. The light of God's grace for you shines through the message of this supper this morning to give you life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful that Jesus, in all of his splendor, is victorious on our behalf. We thank you that he suffered our death and bore our sin and rose from the grave that we might have life, and that he has come as light to the world and remains the light of the world to this day that we might continue looking to him and seeing clearly for salvation. Give us life in his name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.